Welcome to The Draft Board, where hosts David Song and Tyson Workington tackle the topics that you want to hear. From the rink, to the turf, to the court, anything and everything, this is The Draft Board. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. It's been a really long time since we've been hanging out with you here on The Draft Board, but once again, we are back. My name's David, his name's Tyson, and we're thrilled to return to doing one of the things that we love to talk about, which is sports. Now, I do have to apologize for being so inactive. We've had yeah, one come episode. on, David. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, when you're studying uh, in grad school, even if it is sports journalism, the only type of grad school that I personally would ever consider, <laughs> and and did, life did get busy for me down down there in Indianapolis, and I just found that. You know, I needed to find a rhythm to stay ahead of schedule on my schoolwork and also, of course, get used to living in a, in a different place again. But fortunately, uh, if anyone, you know, the two people out there that care about this, uh, it's been a good semester. You know, I, I've been blessed with a lot of great friends and a lot of great experiences as well. For example, I, I was privileged enough to cover the Big Ten Championship football game couple of weeks ago as the Michigan Wolverines punched their ticket to the college football playoff in in Lucas Oil Stadium and that's uh that's a big deal mm-hmm. yeah it's, oh I saw the game and I was cheering for Iowa because I'm not super big on Michigan but oh man it was a great atmosphere from the TV set and I was oh man being able to see the bands playing and it I'm sure the place was absolutely rocking. It looked like it was a great game and a great atmosphere. It certainly was rocking. Uh, but one thing I learned about the press box is that the press box is very good insulation at Lucas Oil <laughs> Stadium because we journalists need to focus on our jobs. Other fun fact, uh, the press box, at least at Lucas Oil, I assume this would be the case for major sports elsewhere, press box has its own PA announcer, too, that calls out plays down and distances to help us keep track of the game, which is also fun. Yeah, I'm sure that makes it a whole lot easier on you guys. Oh, boy. So that way you know what yard line it's on and how long the run uh, And then whether it was Hassan Haskins or Blake Corum carrying the ball, because when <laughs> five things are happening at once, you really have to be on your game. But thankfully, I was able to make it back to Calgary for, for the holidays. And with all the uncertainty caused by the Omicron variant, I'm privileged to be sitting next to you Tyson or in front of you rather and with school almost in the rear, rear view mirror for me and it being in the rear view mirror for you we get to sit down and talk about sports but unfortunately we do have to begin with uh, one of our more somber uh, traditions in, in earlier episodes and that is to uh shout out somebody or shout out's probably not the right word to remember somebody mm -hmm. uh, who's passed away in the athletic world and and that is former nfl receiver demarius thomas who passed away very unexpectedly at the age of 33 just months after retiring from the nfl it, it was reported that demarius had been suffering from seizures for several months before his passing and and that he may have suffered a seizure uh, around the time of his death that may have directly contributed. But it, it was a shock. I remember waking up, and I think the first thing I saw on Instagram the day that he passed earlier this week was Tim Tebow. Mm -hmm. uh, Tim Tebow's Instagram post uh, paying tribute to Demarius, and you know, many others, uh, Peyton Manning, uh, many of 
Demarius's former Broncos teammates and NFL peers uh, honored him as uh, as uh, as apparently a man who was a light in the room that he walked into and was a great receiver, but uh, apparently an even better person. And uh, we want to we want we want to recognize that and uh, and say that we we want to say that uh, our thoughts and prayers are with his family. Yeah, uh, I, everything that from what I've heard is that. You know, Demarius was a was a great guy to be around, like a really um, Hall of Fame person, you know. And um, kind of what I heard and what I understood is that the reason why Demarius was suffering from a lot of these seizures was because he got into a pretty bad car accident a while back. And his condition had, you know, previously been kind of getting worse and worse. And um, Shannon Sharp on his uh, TV show with Skip Bayless, you know, he mentioned that he had been told about, you know, Demarius's condition beforehand, but he never got the opportunity to go and see him before he passed away. And, and now he won't get to. And, you know, he definitely regretted that a lot because, you know, he, he, he had the opportunity, but he didn't go to. So uh, it's really sad. And especially at the age of 33, you know, Demarius was so young and he will be sorely missed because he's a great person. And I think that it's just a little bit of a somber reminder that, life doesn't last forever and what life we have with our friends and family and with ourselves you know we ought to cherish that because you never know if it's gonna be gone the next minute yeah and fortunately the denver broncos paid a very cool tribute to demarius on sunday's game against the detroit lions where on the first play of the game they lined up with 10 men and took the delay of game which detroit uh, obviously declined and yeah it was you know, it's reminiscent of, of uh, in the military, they call it the missing man formation, where they'll fly uh, four jets o- over the funeral of a soldier. Rather, sorry, they're going to fly formation of what should be four jets, and either one of them is missing and they use three, or one of those four jets pulls up and out mm-hmm. uh, over the course of the flyover to signify uh, that a man has fallen and really lining up with 10 men is football's version of that. And it was a very, very classy very very classy tribute and i'm sure that demarius will be fondly remembered by many Mm -hmm. yeah so our thoughts and prayers are with the family obviously and for all those who were close to demarius and yeah you know uh, he was a great guy and and he'll be missed yeah Mm -hmm. now to move on from that we would also like to bring a little bit of a positive news albeit more much more trivial than what we just talked about but why don't you tell the folks about what Kurt Benkert got to do this weekend? Yeah, so Kurt Benkert, you know, he's a quarterback. He played for the Green Bay Packers, and um, he's been in the league for a while. <laughs> and just recently, he was able to dress for his first ever uh, NFL game. And you know, he had been he had been in the league for a thousand three hundred and some days or so, is what he said on his Twitter. And he had never gotten the opportunity to dress mm-hmm. and be a part of the team life of a third string quarterback right you're oftentimes kind of the guy scratched and not really playing a lot not being on the sidelines a lot but you know this was kurt's time to have an opportunity to you know dress and be a part of the game and um just in the final minutes when green bay was winning you know they decided hey let's get kurt out there to take the final snap the kneel down so that way he can say that he played in an nfl game and you know, a thousand three hundred days after you know he first became part of the NFL, 
Kurt finally got his chance to be able to play in a game. And I think it's really cool that the Packers let him do that and that he was able to uh, mm. fulfill his dream of playing in the NFL. Yeah, that, that that's pretty cool. I think the only thing that would have been cooler is if in that you know, fourth quarter two clock situation, they let him hand the ball to A.J. Dillon up the middle once or twice. Mm. But, you know, I'm sure Kurt's not going to get too greedy. I'm sure he's thrilled to be able to at least participate in his first NFL game and, and be there on the field part of me be there on the field with his teammates and obviously if you're a Packers fan like we are the 3045 drubbing of Chicago mm. counts as feel good news in its own right absolutely you know just <laughs> if you'll allow me to be a little bit irreverent it's like Chicago to put up 30 points on the Packers defense only for the Packers to score 45 to go in the other way right that's that's always the best part for us is is the big win for Green Bay but yeah, I, I'm just thankful that Kurt got to experience this time where he got to play in an NFL game. And, you know, even if it ends now, I'm sure he'll be like, at least I made it. I'll I, I tell you what, if he gets a chance to do this again, I really want LaFleur to let him hand it off to A.J. Dillon. <laughs> let him throw one pass. On the... Throw one pass, you know, design screen, Devontae Adams, just <laughs> just get the ball in his hands. Let him let him say he, he did it in a low leverage situation, right? That would, be, that would be awesome. Maybe it'll happen. We'll see. But to move on into the rest of our episode today, I just want to give you listeners a heads up that... Much like our, our previous episode was, was shorter than the ones that came before it, what Tyson and I want to do is we want to experiment with a somewhat different approach to, to this podcast. I think in our first season, we really proved that we're capable of doing our research and backing up our claims with facts and stats and takes from more established sports journalists and as well as infusing our own opinion, but... You know, for the next little while, we really want to kind of kick back a little bit and make this feel more like some, a few friends just chatting about sports at the bar or at the restaurant rather than to sports journalists doing their homework on, on the microphone. So that's what we're going to do, although we're still going to have a few stats to, to make a few points. But just so you guys know, uh, you can expect our next few episodes to be shorter and you can expect uh, a, a bit less number crunching and a bit more just free-flowing chatting and again you know we're we're okay with being wrong we're okay with throwing out takes that are a little outlandish and uh, from time to time as long as it gets people interested you know what i'm saying tyson yes the lions are winning the super bowl okay skip bayless <laughs> <laughs> you keep telling yourself that <laughs> no, 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 but 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 listen, man. Like, J.R. Smith is gonna win a Masters in three years or less. Like that's. <laughs> oh yes. Um, but he already got us his 4.0 in college, so what I just said is slightly more possible than. Amen. We would have thought it would have been a little while. Who would have thought ago. that J.R. Smith would get a 4.0 in college? But here he is doing it. Good for him. Hey, you know what? I just realized that's another feel-good story. Okay. Like J.R. Smith is. Ba basketball veteran who had a lot of athletic gifts earlier in his career he was often criticized later in his career for inconsistent play the the infamous time with cleveland where he grabbed an offensive rebound and started running the wrong way as the clock <laughs> expired forever earning lebron james's ire as well as forever earning pop culture infamy on the internet but hey he's moved on to the next chapter of his life and He's got a 4.0, and he worked hard to make the collegiate golf team at his school. And so, you know what? Good, good, good on you, JR. Good on you, JR. Now, 
we do have to talk a, a little bit about numbers uh, today because or early, earlier this week, uh, yesterday in fact, Stephen Curry has officially become the NBA's all-time leader in three-point shots, 2,974 from beyond the arc over the course of a career that's not even over yet. Obviously, he broke the great Ray Allen's record, and what was shocking uh, about that was that Ray Allen at, I think it was 2,973 or 72, I think, Ray Allen needed 1,300 career games to get there, Mm -hmm. and Steph Curry broke that record in 789 career games. He Now, granted, part of the reason for that is because Curry came into the league at a time when long-range shooting had become a premium, but that's not to take anything away from him. He's a phenomenal marksman, and uh, now nobody can question it if they did to begin with. Yeah, and, you know, he came into a a league where three-pointing was on the rise and shooting was on the rise. And, you know, I, I think that really helped his game and really helped him. But, hey, at the end of the day, you still have to make the shots that you take, right? Otherwise, you're not going to be able to stick around in the league very long. And, you know, you got to give Curry credit. He shoots at an incredibly high rate. So, hey, if you can make them, why not take them, right? So i'm glad that curry got to be able to break this record and i'm even happier that his father was able to be in attendance there and watch him break the record and ray allen was also there and i just think that it's so great that curry was able to have this occasion but i think it's interesting a little bit that what draymond green said afterwards is that he wouldn't be surprised if some of these young guys uh eventually end up breaking curry's record because they're just shooting the ball way more at a younger age and they're going to have long careers too. And, you know, it's going to get to the point in time where they're just going to shoot and shoot and shoot more and more. And they're eventually going to break Curry's record. So yeah. Like Ben Simmons. (laughs) Ben Simmons needs to learn a a little bit more about shooting the ball before I think that he's going to be given the green light to take multiple threes a game. (laughs) Just a tad, you know, just a tad. I think he's (laughs) almost there, but not quite. Hashtag sarcasm. If that wasn't clear, (laughs) but Having said that, the little bit of a talking point that this made me think about was how we view Steph Curry's position today versus how it has traditionally been viewed. As you know, Curry plays point guard, and he's considered one of the best point guards in the NBA because he's such a pure offensive threat. No one can take that away from him, and I'm certainly not going to try, but what provoked my thought was a graphic on Facebook. I I forget which media outlet it was, but it was somebody's ranking of the top five point guards of all time. And Stephen Curry and Kyrie Irving were both on this list, and John Stockton was not. Now, if you're a younger basketball fan, you you may not know who John Stockton is. Uh, He's really not that significant. He's just uh, the all-time assist leader, (laughs) 15,806 helpers over the course of 1,504 games. John Stockton, who played for the Utah Jazz alongside the dominant Carl Malone, is also the all-time leader in steals, 3,265 takeaways over the course of his career, where Michael Jordan repeatedly robbed him of the chance to win (laughs) an NBA ring. But that's not what we're talking about here. And... So Tyson, what I want to talk to you about is, you know, admittedly, like, you know more about basketball than I do, but I just thought it was, first of all, sacrilegious that John Stockton's name didn't even come up 
in, in a list of top five point guards of all time, considering that he really was the prototype for the position in terms of his style. And in the in the meantime, Steph Curry, like I said, he's a great offensive threat, a generational offensive threat. But let's be real, that his style of play doesn't really gel with what a traditional point guard is considered to do, because a traditional point guard is not the primary scorer on his team. He's really he's really a facilitator. He he runs the offense and 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 he doesn't take necessarily a ton of his own shots whereas as you're saying Steph Curry being a high volume three-point shooter is quite different from that mold and to sort of back that up I want to it's funny we what folks I promise these are these are the last serious stats we're going to talk about this episode and then we're gonna and then we're gonna really uh go off the rails here and uh, we'll, we'll finish the episode with something that's really off the rails <laughs> but, but but here we go right you look at Steph Curry Phenomenal scorer, we all know that, but he's averages about six and a half assists per game uh, for his career, which is nothing to sneeze at. But when you compare it to a guy like Chris Paul, Chris Paul averages 9.4 mm. assists per game, and he's oftentimes called the last of the true point guards because he does split his efforts between scoring and facilitating. And so I think that. Stephen Curry really is emblematic, just like the Golden State Warriors are, of positionless basketball, where what it means to play any position in the NBA has changed dramatically. But as far as being the greatest point guard of all time, I don't feel like you can necessarily say that because he just plays a different style from a guy like John Stockton and Chris Paul. Yeah, and just as a question, was Magic Johnson on that list? Uh, yeah, he was. Yeah, okay, I would expect him to be there. So, but yeah, like I'm, I'm a huge John Stockton fan, and just so you know, like he did make the Hall of Fame. And, Thank goodness. And like he's one of the best, and I think that John Stockton is really kind of a forgotten player because you know they, they only remember Jordan because Jordan just beat Stockton and Malone and the in the finals every year for the 90s it seemed like but anyways like yeah i just think john stockton doesn't get nearly the respect as as much as he deserves like he averaged like so many assists per game like there was a season where he averaged or there was a time where he averaged more than 11 assists a season for like seven seasons in a row I yeah think. that's and, insane and that's insane right and you know i like the fact that Stockton was able to um, be a point guard that not only was able to score, but also was able to facilitate and run the offense. People who analyze and kind of look at Stockton's game kind of look at it and go, well, listen, hey, the game that Utah played for the majority of Stockton's career was a pick-and-roll game between him and Malone. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really a complex offense. It was really just a two-man show. And that's what they knock against Stockton is like, yeah, he got all these assists, but he was only passing to mm-hmm. one guy. And that happened to be Carl Malone, who's second all time in points. And that's really why a lot of people don't like Stockton is because they don't see the other stats of him, of like how much he scored or his steals. And yeah, like I think that Stockton is really, really good and he needs to be in this conversation Especially because, you know, Kyrie Irving was on that list. And I 
I don't think Kyrie Irving is nearly the player that Stockton was. Sure. I agree. Kyrie probably has more individual skill. For sure. You know, like um, Stockton probably doesn't have the handles that, that Kyrie does. Kyrie can shoot the ball better. But Stockton's ability to run the offense that was given to him, pass the ball, and be able to create positions for his teammates to score is far better than what Kyrie does. Kyrie's game is mostly about getting himself in positions to score, not others. He's more of a solo player, almost like a one-on-five basketball situation where he's just going to dribble around everybody, get to the hoop, and score. Or he's going to dribble to a team, and and if he gets double-teamed or triple-teamed in a situation, he'll pass the ball off, and and Kyrie will then get an assist from that. But I, I don't think that when you look at Kyrie's game, you really see someone that's there to make the team better, there to make the players around him better. He's looking at, okay, how can I score? Because what I score, that makes the team better, which is partially true. But, yeah, I think that Scott, uh, Stockton's ability to you know, pass the ball, lead the offense, be able to be a, a lockdown defender, like what you said, like the steals, you know, he, he was incredible with that. I just, I just think Stockton was a great player. Yeah, frankly, you know, when you compare a guy like Kyrie to a guy like Stockton, I think it's style versus substance. Like Kyrie is the more attractive pick. He's got maybe the tightest handle in the NBA. He's a dynamic one-on-one scorer. Nobody wants to guard him on ball, and he puts up his points. But, yeah, when it, I think it comes to overall team impact. Now, again— Different eras are hard to compare, yes, and Mm -hmm. we have to acknowledge that, but when you look at the prototype of each player, Kyrie, I think, is an individual scorer, and John Stockton is a true point guard, and and the fact that Kyrie was on that list and John Stockton wasn't was, I think, at best recency bias, Mm -hmm. and at worst a fundamental misunderstanding of how basketball works or could work. Yeah. Sorry, Kyrie. And I mean, like with the Nets right now, like what we saw recently up until, you know, Kyrie can't play with the Nets obviously right now. But like what we saw with the Nets with Kyrie, Harden, and and uh, Kevin Durant is that Kyrie Irving was not the point guard. James Harden was the point guard. James Harden was the one who was running the offense, facilitating the ball, making sure that everybody was in the positions that Getting they questionable foul calls. Well, I mean, that's always what James Harden has been doing. Thank goodness the rules have changed this year Thank for that. Thank goodness. But, yeah, like Kyrie Irving was more or less the shooting guard. But we don't think of Kyrie as a shooting guard because he doesn't have the body style of a traditional shooting guard even though that's what his game suggests that he and is. And not only that, it's just in the name, right? Shooting guard. Kyrie is not the kind of spot-up long-range shooter that Steph is. Mm-hmm. Kyrie wants to get to the rim and finish there, which is he's a slasher with great handles. And I would I would argue, I could be wrong, but I would argue that's his best offensive tra- uh, trait, or at least one of his best offensive traits. Right. And, like, this is a fundamental issue that I think is going on with, like, college basketball, high school basketball is college and high school basketball teams, rightfully so, have decided that they're just going to let the best player on their team be their point guard because he's the best player and they need the ball in his hand. So let's have him have the ball from the beginning to the end. So like when Anthony Bennett was here in Canada still playing, Anthony Bennett uh, was given the task of bringing the ball up the court and playing as the point guard, even though he was 6'7 in high school. 
So Anthony Bennett learned point guard skills, and he was kind of this massive player. Then he went to college, he played at UNLV, eventually became the number one overall draft pick of the Cavs, right? Anthony Bennett never learned how to play power forward football or power forward basketball down in the post and he was essentially a small player that didn't learn how to block out rebound or that kind of stuff because he never learned to because in high school he was always given the task of running the offense being the ball carrier and and just go to the rim and score bud because you're more athletic than everybody and kind of the same thing at UNLV you know UNLV is not a traditional basketball powerhouse so, you know, when Anthony Bennett got there and, you know, they're going up against a weaker Mountain West Conference for basketball, um, this is what you can kind of expect. So I, I see that a lot. Like it's happened with the most recent first overall pick, Cunningham with the Pistons. Kind of the same thing happened with him. Lonzo Ball, kind of the same thing. You know, he's a bigger guy, but he's a point guard. Same with Ben Simmons. You see who these, is a small forward who can't shoot. Right, and Russell Westbrook, who's a small guy who has incredible athleticism and just was given, like, the ball and said, go score, son, because you're better than everybody else. And that style of gameplay doesn't translate to winning basketball. I don't think Kyrie Irving could have success winning games without a LeBron or without a Kevin Durant on his team because he needs a guy that is able to score and play without the basketball because Kyrie needs the basketball. Yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree with you on that. And yeah, I don't know, Coach John Stockton, man. I think he's he's definitely before our time, but he, he deserves to be remembered. And thankfully, thankfully he is he is in the Hall of Fame. And But going back to Steph for a second, obviously none of this takes anything away from Curry. I think people just need to realize is that when you talk about Curry as a quote-unquote point guard, it's much different than the point guards of days past, like the Chris Pauls and the Stocktons and uh, even maybe the Magic Johnsons of the world. Curry just runs the offense a different way, and he helps his team a different way. Unlike Kyrie, he can and does play extremely well without the basketball. He's constantly cutting, and his shooting range means that if you give him one inch of space, he'll knock something down from 25 feet, but... I just think it's interesting to kind of pause and think about that, that the way that he runs Golden State's offense is different than the way that many offenses have been run in the NBA mm-hmm. in the past. Now, with that said, let's switch to different sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a hockey fan, you understand that Team Canada and Team USA have both released their new jerseys for the upcoming Olympics. Yeah, those incredibly politically charged controversial Olympics that (laughs) may or may not happen as originally scheduled. But that aside, we obviously can't show you visuals over a podcast. And so if you want to know what we're talking about, you can just Google Team Canada Hockey Jersey 2021, Team USA Jersey Hockey Jersey 2021. 2022. Pardon me, 2022. They were released this year, 2021. Uh, My bad, but... Suffice to say, Tyson, there were mixed results on these uniforms, and you feel strongly about it more than I do, so I'm going to let you take it away. Yeah, I don't know where you're getting the mixed results from. Uh, the the What I've heard is most of them have been bad. <laughs> I don't like these, these jerseys. The USA looks so bad, but Canada's looks almost just as worse. Like... 
Oh, the 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 black logo on the black jersey for Team Canada. Oh, it looks so ugly. It, it looks it looks like a turkey butt. It really does. <laughs> it, it, it looks ugly, and it doesn't look like a true Canadian maple leaf. I don't love the color schemes. I don't love the red that they chose. I don't like the 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 style that they made the the jersey out of. And oh, Team USA, man. That font is so bad. Like, they need to go to Helvetica or, <laughs> or Times New Roman or something. Like, oh, man, go to, like, Microsoft Word and choose a better font. Like, <laughs> it looks so bad. And, man, like, I, I don't understand why, you know, people can't seem to get a lot of these jerseys right. Like, they just released a new uh, jersey for the New Jersey Devils, which had more stripes on it than a tiger. <laughs> and, and like, yeah, that one was that one was pretty bad. That was so bad. And like the Nashville Predators released a jersey where nothing like at first glance it looks great, but then you look at it like closely, and then you realize, hang on, everything is off, everything is different, everything is weird. Things aren't supposed to be the way that they do. Uh, things aren't supposed to be the way that they are. But, like, I just can't seem to understand, like, why some of these jerseys aren't able to get it done. Like, it it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I just, I, I don't like the new jerseys. I don't like where a lot of these creative styles have gone. I think we need to go back to what we originally had in the classics that we've experienced recently. Well... Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's an interesting take. I would generally agree with you. Now... To be honest, I don't hate Team Canada's new jerseys as much as you do. In fact, I the word I would use to describe them is decent, which is probably a lot more generous than you and a lot of other people are giving them. Personally, I don't mind the color scheme, although I do think black on black is just a bad idea, pretty obviously. Mm-hmm. And I can see where you're coming from in that the leaf looks, the leaf looks different enough uh, to probably make a lot of people uncomfortable and to kind of look at it sideways and go, what is this? Mm-hmm. It's not what we were expecting, and I feel like that's where you're coming from. I'm not going to go as far as to say turkey butt because I am <laughs> a mature adult, but <laughs> anyways, you know what? I What I'm saying is that I'm okay with them, but I wouldn't necessarily defend them either, and I certainly don't think it's as good or as iconic as the typical hockey Canada where you've got the silhouette of the skater mm. in the in, in the distinctive red and black leaf. I still think that that's awesome. USA jersey, I am 100% with you on that. That font and also the awkward way the three letters are spaced on the front, I think overall gives the jersey the appearance of being amateurish. Right? It, it gives the jersey the appearance of having low production values behind it Mm -hmm. uh i'm not thrilled with that at all i don't think you should be if you're an american hockey fan and it it looks more like a soccer uniform (laughs) well hold on a second (laughs) if it was a soccer uniform it would be saying that those guys play for uh united airlines not team (laughs) usa (laughs) so let's not get ahead of ourselves but no nonetheless nonetheless i'm with you on that and you know the other day tyson we were talking about uniforms and you really believe that sometimes less is more and that there's no need to get wild with these creative changes and aesthetic changes. What do you mean by that? Oh, I mean, like, when you think of the Olympics and you think of the sports, you think of some of the most iconic moments 
of your life. Yes. Um, or at least you do, or at least you do if you're a person of taste. Right. And when you think of that, you don't want to be celebrated with an ugly jersey, right? And like, also a lot of the times when we look back in history and we see some things that are, you know, like jerseys, they weren't, you know, modern designed. It was usually kind of a lower budget thing because, you know, you just kind of slap together a jersey and that's what you wore, right? Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Um, but usually, when we look back on the classics, it was usually very simple, very basic. Okay, we're going to have our, our logo, and it's going to be good, and it's going to be clean, and it's just going to be simple. But also, when we look back on some of these incredible moments in world hockey between countries, we see some of the most beautiful and iconic simple jerseys. And as someone who is kind of growing up as like a 20 something year old who wants to experience great moments in the Olympics. I want to see those classics come back as a blast from the past. I want to see some of these old themes mm. come back. So like, for example, those miracle on ice jerseys from the night from, from the team USA team, those are classic jerseys. And I don't know a single American person that doesn't like those jerseys. It's, it's iconic. It's simple. It's basic. And it's an excellent jersey. And anytime mm. that the Team USA wants to go back to that, they absolutely can. On top of that, they have the USA jerseys from 1992, where they kind of have the waving flag coming out of the S underneath mm. USA. Very clean, very simple jerseys. But not only that, it's also a creative way to incorporate your nationality, your national flag, into a sports jersey. And I think that's another big thing that it's got going for it with that flag. Right. And I think that that's like a really good jersey. And a lot of times um, the Team USA World Junior jerseys incorporate that style a lot. And I, I really like those jerseys. Again... In Team Canada, when you think about, like, the best Team Canada jersey, you're thinking about that beautiful red and white with the massive half Canada leaf on it, and you think of Gretzky, and you think of Lemieux. Uh, I think it's from 1988. Uh, I'll check that out right now. But it looks so beautiful, and it's so iconic. And Canada has not done a recreation of that jersey yet. And I think it's sad, because I think... That's one of the best jerseys that Canada has ever had. And it's kind of a, a, a throwback to the 72 Summit Series. But, like, we haven't had something like that since then. And, man, I, I just wish that we could be able to go back and look at some of these old classic styles that were so successful, that were so beautiful, and go back to that. Because I think the, those jerseys are excellent. They're A-pluses. Knock them out of the park. Why do you need to recreate the Canadian leaf every single time we have an Olympics? I don't think you need to. I, I'm inclined to agree with you on that. And even looking back on the jerseys that Canada wore at the 2010 and 2014 Winter Olympics, which are quite recent, my opinion, those are pretty good too. But like you said, they're, they're simple. It's the maple leaf's front and center. It's not an unusual looking maple leaf. It's a traditional maple leaf silhouette and you've got your red and you've got your white and that that's really all it is. And obviously 2010 Vancouver brings back some of the best memories of your life if you're a Canadian hockey fan. 2014 was a very memorable tournament as well. And yeah, sometimes I think we do need to go back to the adage of if it's, if it ain't broke rather, 
you don't fix it. Mm -hmm. And I think that overfixing actually gives you new problems as we are arguing about about these new jerseys. I think, yeah, I guess the conclusion on my end is that USA's current jersey really isn't excusable. I think it just, it looks cheap. It looks simple and amateurish in the wrong way. And it's not really something that you're particularly proud of on your chest. Canada, like I said, I'm okay with the new one, but I certainly don't think it's as good as the ones that you just mentioned, as well as even what we had in 2010, 2014. And like you said the other day, there's no reason why you can't do slight modifications or classic throwbacks. And the Olympics are only once every four years. If you do a little bit of that, you're pretty much good for the next 12 years before you can before you need to do something different. And I don't know. I think everyone would ultimately be better served with that mode of thinking. I think so. And, you know, ultimately, it's not my decision, but I don't want to be cheering for Team Canada and buying a Team Canada jersey that I don't think looks good. You know, and for me, I'm a, I, I want, I'm a big believer in take pride in what you do. And I think that, you know, Team Canada, there's no excuse for getting their Olympic jersey wrong. We are kind of the standard for uh, national hockey. You know, we're kind of the favorites to win gold every year. Although, let's be fair, USA pushes us oh, every year. Well, USA, USA is going to have a really good team this year. And, you know, Sweden and Russia, they're really good. But um, And Finland's always got a very feisty, very good team. And uh, but like, and then there's China that's about to get uh, steamrolled. Yeah, that's about to be rough. But, like, a lot of these Team Canada jerseys, like, I think that Team Canada needs to do better. Because for Canada, like, you're the standard. Like, Team Canada is the, is the standard in which everyone else should compare themselves to. And if you're better than Team Canada, then you're usually in a really good position to win gold. And if you're not better than Team Canada, then you need to work to get better than Team Canada. That should be true on the ice and off the ice. And I think right now, off the ice, with something as simple as jerseys, it's lacking. And I don't think that that's okay. Mm. I, I, I want Canada to be better than that. And I mm. want our Canadian national team to win gold in something that looks beautiful. Mm. Well, I certainly can't argue with you there, and who knows, maybe in the future there'll be a paradigm shift in uh, aesthetic design as far as sports jerseys are concerned. Uh, we all know the New Jersey Devils franchise needs that, and mm -hmm. it remains to be seen, but I just hope that, well, I, I don't know, I'm not going to get into my personal thoughts on, on the Olympics uh, mm -hmm. in Beijing, that's a topic for another time, but I, if it happens as planned, I do hope obviously that Canada performs very well, and that it will be a games, games to remember across many, many different sports, but well, in order to, to... Also, just a quick little Easter egg for those listening, if you want to see some high quality Olympic uh, hockey jerseys, take a, take a look and, and go and Google the Israeli hockey jersey Olympics and uh, go and Google the Australian Olympic hockey jersey. Both of those, in my opinion, are A pluses and they are very cool and very interesting. I'm not even going to tell you what they look like. <laughs> You're just going to have to look them up, my friends. But I, I promise it'll be a worthwhile 20 seconds. Those are really, really fun designs. Anyways, as I was saying, to finish off our episode, like I alluded to earlier, we're just going to 
take the tie off and let our hair down and and really just have fun talking about a ridiculous concept that would never work in any type of realistic or serious competition but it's something we're calling franken football and how what do we mean by franken football here's a quick primer on how football works and specifically how Canadian football differs from its American counterpart. In Canadian football, you've only got three downs to advance the ball 10 yards. American football, it's four. Canadian football, you've got 12 men aside. American football, you only have 11. That's because the Canadian field is 110 yards to only 100 for the American field. And it's 65 yards wide to I think about 43, 45 yards for the American side. I actually brought this up in in class discussion, one of my sports journalism classes this semester, that Canadian football very curiously has its goalposts at the front of their massive 15-yard deep end zones, which literally means a passing play run towards the middle of the end zone risks having the ball deflecting off the goalpost in the air and falling nowhere near its intended receiver, which is, I'll tell you what, my American football friends were flabbergasted at that notion, but it's something <laughs> we CFL fans are quite familiar with. And we regularly see players running across on like a slant or a crossing route or a drag or whatever and running into the goalpost itself. And because <laughs> they run into it, they hit the ground and then they're not able and the ball becomes an incomplete <laughs> or at worst an interception. I have seen that as well, where a player is about to catch the ball, they run into the goal post and go and hit the ground hard and then it's an interception and it's a turnover <laughs> that's literally a cartoon like who put that post there right who put that post there <laughs> the progenitors of canadian football did <laughs> okay so but our ludicrous idea is what if we somehow combine both codes of football at the same time where you literally have one end of the field that's got an extra five yards tacked on because it's Canadian length and you've got one team playing with 11 men aside but they've got four downs to advance the ball mm -hmm. and their opponents get to play with 12 men aside but they've only got uh, three downs to advance the ball and it's like, I haven't even seen a video game this ridiculous, but <laughs> humor me, Tyson. What do you think? So basically what you're saying is one side has to play with NFL rules and one side has to yes. play with CFL rules. Yes. And one half of the field is NFL-sized and one half of the field is CFL-sized. I don't know how that would work for width. <laughs> that, would be pretty, that would be pretty janky, but... You're running up the sideline and all of a sudden you have to cut in five yards and <laughs> keep running. <laughs> that would be so funny. That would that would be really interesting to watch. But yeah, I think I think it would be really weird and interesting to see because like obviously with like NFL football, you have more chances to throw the like to get downs and like you have more downs. You have four chances to get ten yards. But CFL, you have more players 12 men yeah. you have you have a, you have the extra player on the field so and uh, like where do you put that extra defender do you have an extra corner on their best receiver in like a one-on-one -on -one situation or do you have like another guy in the box to stop the run does it change depending on formations or right do you like default to a five-man rush Ooh, interesting right you could do so many different things if you had that kind of janky advantage right. over your opponent which and it would be so fascinating to see to what extent the extra man on the field advantage is negated by the one fewer down right and also like on the other side like you have this offense that has to have three like they only have three downs 
but they have an extra player out there. So do you have an extra wide receiver out there? So that way, like, the the defense is forced to play six defensive backs and three rushers? Like, that would be an interesting dynamic of, like, okay, what do you do here? Well, listen, I think that what you just described would disproportionately favor the Canadian team if you also take into account the CFL neutral yard between the offensive and defensive lines. It's already easier to run the ball in Canadian football for that very reason, particularly on short yardage. If If you force your opponent to play dime on top of that, Derrick Henry might average 16 a carry. (laughs) That would be crazy. Yeah, just so you know, like, for the NFL, you can line up on the line of scrimmage. But in the CFL, you have to give a yard distance between the two. So there have been instances where um, it's been, like, the, the CFL ball is, like, on the goal line, essentially. And defensive players still have to give that yard. So they're lining up in the end zone. <laughs> and it's like, all you have to do is, like, lunge forward two inches for a sneak and you get the touchdown. So that's why, like, on third down in the CFL, everybody goes for it on third and one, third and inches. Because you almost are guaranteed a yard on, like, a QB sneak every time, no matter what. And even if you decide to hand the ball off to a tailback, if it's up the middle, the defensive line is given up that ground. Short yardage. Mm-hmm. The advantage is with, with the offense, whereas in the NFL, the quarterback sneak on... Again, for the uninitiated, quarterback sneak is essentially where the quarterback lines up directly behind the center of his offensive line. And as soon as he gets the ball, he surges forward as his line surges in front of him to try and clear at least one yard of space. In the NFL, it's a well-known play, but it's much more of a back-of-the-toolbox utility play, very, very situational and not terribly common. In the CFL, it happens pretty much on every single short yardage because that extra yard almost guarantees you the first down in that situation, which makes it all the more impressive or all the more embarrassing when the defense is able to stop a quarterback sneak on short yardage. Yeah, and that's why like going forward on third down is so common in the CFL. I was just thinking, like, how would it affect coaching? Because, like, with coaches' challenges, certain things are challengeable in the CFL, but not in the NFL. Mm. Or, like, there's a three-minute warning and a two-minute warning. And not only that, uh, NFL uh, NFL timeouts are tied to that challenge, but NFL has three, CFL has one. Yeah. Per half as well. It's, wow, I mean... (laughs) Folks, we never said it was feasible. (laughs) We never said it was feasible. I think it's just our way of really spotlighting some of the major differences between American and Canadian football and thinking about how much it changes the game. Call up uh, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, and see if he can get the XFL to adopt our rules for a Uh, trial period. Ah, yes, and then you've also got to call Vince McMahon because something that ridiculous (laughs) deserves full professional wrestling kayfabe on, on top of that. Oh, man. But, but look, to sort of finish off this ridiculous thought exercise, I do want to talk a little bit about the nuances uh, of the CFL game that are different from the NFL but that aren't immediately obvious. And, and one of them is the makeup of a defense. Mm. In the NFL, pardon me, in the NFL, obviously you have a variety of defensive styles, but because of that of there's there's no neutral zone between the offensive and defensive lines 
you get defensive linemen, particularly interior defensive tackles that are much bigger, 300 pounds, 320, 330 plus, if you're talking your prototypical run-stopping nose tackle, which is perhaps not as common as it once was, but they're definitely still there and they definitely still serve a purpose. In the CFL, the biggest defensive tackles I've ever heard of are right around 300 pounds, but not only that, there are many defensive tackles that are right around 270, 275, which in the NFL is borderline defensive end size. In fact, it, it pretty much is defensive end size in, in a lot of defensive schemes. And the reason for the smaller defensive line is that one yard, the one yard requires the defensive line to be much more mobile. They have to move along the front and try to penetrate into the backfield, and they're able to do that with the extra space, whereas in the NFL, big and strong plays much more of a factor because you are right there up on the offensive line, and those big, especially interior offensive linemen can get their hands on you right away. As I, you know, coincidentally, as I was watching the CFL games later uh, this year in the playoffs, I noticed that edge rushers in the CFL, oh boy, do they have some real estate to work mm -hmm. with. They are lined up so far off the line of scrimmage that speed rushing and finesse moves become of primary importance against those outside offensive tackles. Oh yeah, and like that's not just in the CFL here in Canada. Like that goes down to the college and to the high school football level. When I was playing football here in Canada, just briefly in in my high school career, like we were told like there would be times that defensive ends would line up three, four, five yards past the tackle. Wow. Like just like to gain extra like width. And what is angle. that? That's like eleven technique at that point. I know, right? And it's like it's so weird and so janky to like line up that far away from the offensive tackle. But that just gives them so much more room to like get that edge and set that corner. And yeah, like you mentioned, like there's so much more room out there for edge rushers because the defensive tackles are different and how defenses run their um run their schemes in the cfl oftentimes rushing three and rushing four it happens blitzes happen less often because sometimes you'll have you know five offensive linemen a running back and and you'll still have five wide receivers out that's quite common so you'll have six blockers five wide receivers and you're you're, you're obviously your quarterback mm. so it, it creates a little bit more difficult way to try and generate pressure off the blitz because you have that extra man in the CFO, so you have one extra guy to block if you need to while still putting out four routes for route combinations. And also on the pass coverage end, it's almost like the Canadian football was leaning on nickel packages before it was cool because years ago you've already got – a lot of cases where default starting lineups, the third linebacker in there is essentially a converted defensive back, like a safety who can tackle or or a corner who is more physical but is has a lot of pass coverage, where in the NFL, more traditionally, you'd have three or sometimes even four linebackers in a in traditional 3-4 scheme. And it seems to me a little bit more recently, they, they've had a lot more hybrids uh, in that position. But still, with that massive field, pass coverage becomes so important in the Canadian game. And even the traditional linebackers you have, rarely are they 250-plus pound run pluggers, as was common in the NFL until relatively recently. Yeah. And I just noticed, like, in the CFL, I'm not sure if it's just because the athletes are different or because the field is so much bigger and so much wider. You see so much more zone coverage. 
like man-to-man coverage usually doesn't you, you don't really see it in the CFL unless they're facing a young inexperienced rookie quarterback who can't fit the ball in tight windows but if you're experiencing a quarterback you know that's a veteran like Mike Riley Bo Levi Mitchell who can fit the ball in tight windows consistently you'll oftentimes see a lot less man just because the field is so wide and so long and so deep you need to have more zones so that way you're much more of in a safer uh, position defensively in the back end. You know, with the field being so big, I've always wondered. I've always wondered what the biggest arms in the NFL, the Matthew Staffords, the Josh Allen's, could do on that big field because, you know, with all due respect to CFL quarterbacks, they overall are not as talented and as physically gifted as their NFL counterparts. But they also have to uh, get the ball further down the field mm-hmm. because of, of its size. And and so, it, like, in the CFL, 20-yard outs become 30-yard outs. The wide side of the field is an ocean yeah. out there. And, oh, yeah. and I would love to see what, like I said, a Stafford or an Allen, some of these pure rocket arm guys, or, heck, if Brett Favre was still playing. Yeah. You know, have a guy with that arm strength, you know, how much more mustard could those kind of guys get on those deep out throws to the wide side of the field compared to their current CFL counterparts? It would be a show to watch. It definitely would. And, oh, man. I would love to see Josh Allen, especially because of his athleticism in the run game. Like quarterbacks in the CFL, because the field is so big and because oftentimes, you know, there's a lot of deep zones on the field. It gives quarterbacks an, an opportunity to scramble and run for yards quite regularly in the in the CFL. So um, one thing that I'm thinking of is like Kevin Durant or not Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant. Darian Durant. Hello. From the, from the Rough Riders. He was so good at like just picking up like first down after first down just scrambling and uh you know Corey joseph another really good uh, scrambling qb henry burris was able to get out of the pocket scramble and then cody Fajardo today with right. the saskatchewan rough riders yeah right so casey printers there's been a, a long list doug flutie long list of quarterbacks who have rocket arms who can also run mm. and those guys have lots of success in the CFL just because the field is so big. It gives them a lot of space to run. Dear Lord, can you imagine Lamar Jackson in the CFL? Oh man, it would be disgusting. Could he, could you stop him? I'm not sure you could. Man, he would would break contain every play. He's already like a video king. Could you imagine if you give him an extra wide receiver and more field to run And a small defensive line with tons of gaps up the middle? Goodness gracious. I'm not sure you would want to, you would want to go, go against that uh but yeah, okay one more thing i want to mention like, this will again drive my american football friends nuts in the cfl slot receivers which are called slot backs are allowed to take a forward running start towards the line of scrimmage whereas in the nfl only lateral pre-snap motion is allowed and much to your earlier point about there being so much zone coverage it's pretty much impossible to play press coverage on those slot backs because on almost every player they are jogging toward the line of scrimmage from five yards deep in the backfield and so long as they don't cross the line of scrimmage before the ball is snapped it's a legal play and you know try man try man demanding that consistently it's going to be very hard well yeah and also like motion and waggle um you don't need to have a QB motion like for example if a quarterback in the NFL wants a wide receiver to go in motion like go to the other side he needs to signal the player to motion either by taking a step back or by you know waving him with his hand or whatever and only that wide receiver 
is allowed to motion over. Mm-hmm. So if the uh, the quarterback wanted the player to motion back, he would have to signal that player back. He can't like motion one player over to one side and then motion a different player over. That's not allowed. In the CFL, even if you're a wide receiver, you can motion in, you can motion out while these slot backs are running at the line of scrimmage, while a wide receiver on the other side can also motion in and motion out. And they don't have to be signaled with a quarterback. So that's another excellent way at where press coverage can be beaten really easily because the wide receiver who's on the line of scrimmage can just quickly waggle in three seconds before the snap and then go off onto his route by taking a quick 90-degree turn. And all of a sudden, now he has inside leverage on the defensive back who was trying to press him. Gosh, can you imagine a speed demon like Tyree Kill or a jitterbug like Julian Edelman with that amount of freedom at the line of scrimmage? Oh, man. Like, for a wide receiver, it's really a dream because either you get, uh, you're in the slot where you get a running start or you're on the wide side where you get unlimited waggle, unlimited motion, and you can really just manipulate the defensive back however you want pre-snap and then once the snap goes you're you got all the leverage in the world that you need yeah (laughs) well listen at this point if you're an american football fan who's unfamiliar with the cfl we've either thoroughly piqued your interest (laughs) or firmly reinforced your conviction that the cfl is the wild wild west (laughs) and that we canadians love anarchy north of the border and that may well be true in some ways only with football (laughs) only with football and hockey let's be real you went to to a fight in a hockey game broke out it's an old joke that we canadians are very proud of But hey, you know, hopefully, if you are listening to this, maybe you learned something and or maybe you just haven't really thought about the nuanced differences between the NFL and the CFL in a little while. And we're able to jog your memory and kind of get your brain going on that. But like I said, that's all we want to do here on this episode of the draft board we really want to try to get a few more episodes done over the call holidays and particularly in early january before i have to go to the <clears throat> greatest country in the world the united states of america i was Ooh. i was paid to say that <laughs> they're both good guys i promise <laughs> anyways but look guys that's a plan we really want to try to fill out uh, our, our very fledgling season two with a little bit more content uh, over the course of the next few weeks. When do you go back? Oh, I go back uh, about, uh, to be honest, I haven't booked my return flight yet. Probably around January 16th to 24th, maybe. It's a, There's a bit of a range, but... Ooh, interesting. So you'll be around for Canada's World Juniors. I, I will certainly, and we'll certainly talk about that. You know, we got a Flames draft pick, Matt Coronado, on the <laughs> American side, and we got Owen Power of Michigan uh, on the Canadian side. It's, and Connor Bedard as well, and tons of other fun talent. It'll be good to watch. It'll be so exciting. Lots of... Lots of interesting storylines and lots of good picks there. And, yeah, I'm excited to the World Juniors because that's one of my favorites of the Christmas season. And I tell you what, if I'm being honest, after watching the amount of American football and American basketball that I have over the last couple of years, I'm kind of uh, thirsty for some Canadian content here. And and the World Juniors is a great way to do just that. But for Tyson Workington, I'm David Song. See you next time. Thank you for listening to The Draft Board. 
podcast music, intro, and outro is produced by Graham Bass. Your hosts, again, are David Song and Tyson Workington. Come back next week for more insight from the rink, the turf, and the court. See you soon.